Freedom is all about choices, and while there is only one Jeep brand, you have the freedom to choose from an epic lineup of Jeep brand vehicles. Hit the trails with a versatile classic, the Jeep Gladiator, or experience the wild in style with the sophistication and comfort of the Jeep Grand Cherokee or Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE. Looking for a more immersive experience? Let nature come to you in the open-air Jeep Wrangler or Jeep Wrangler 4xE, America's best-selling plug-in hybrid. Whatever you choose, adventure is just one drive away. Visit Jeep.com for details. Based on 2022 CYQ4 sales, GD Power retail sales data, Jeep is a registered trademark. This is the Greg Scheinman Podcast. The Greg Scheinman Podcast. Brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, on the Greg Scheinman Podcast today, we've got Jay Rusevich. Jay is a contemporary fine art photographer and writer. Man is also a beast in the gym, focusing on powerlifting, where we got to know each other a little bit better. Jay's photographic images are creative, they're stunning, they're provocative, and his work with professional bodybuilders and athletes is truly exceptional. Also got a book, Urban Dystrophy. We'll get into that as well as a blog, uh, The Perverse Truth About Midlife in the Big City. And that's available on Amazon as well, if we plug that. Jay, welcome to the Greg Scheinman podcast. Thank you, Greg. It's nice to be here with you. Hey, we got, I'm going to get to this right off the bat. You sent me four messages on your way over here, okay? Facebook, text, Instagram, multimedia messages, all of them shouting out, Hey, call me. Okay, what's the? How do you like to communicate? I prefer to pick up the telephone and talk to somebody on the other end of the phone. I know that's a novel concept these days. You pick up a telephone, you dial a number, person answers, and you have a telephone conversation. It's amazing. I mean, I, I know it's something a lot of people, particularly millennials, are not aware of. But you can actually have a full-on functional conversation over the telephone. And it's better. It's right? amazing. It's totally amazing. <laughs> you fill in all the blanks. You can actually get your points across. And you don't have to go back and forth for the next 25 minutes trying to figure out what the person is trying to tell you. And, and it's ironic. And your timing of it is so perfect. Because right before I got over here, I got a text from a CEO of, another co of, a, of a company. He's a client of mine. And he's texting me. And he's asking questions about insurance coverage. And I... And I'm blasting back, call me, call me, call me. Nobody wants to talk on the phone. Absolutely not, because uh, then they have to actually engage. And to engage these days is like putting people out. They don't want to have to be put out like that. They want to say one or two things quickly, type them out, or talk to Siri about it and let Siri type it out for them and, and get that point across and then move on to something else. In the meantime, they haven't fixed the first point. So there's a lot of great things about technology, but at the end of it all, pick up the fucking phone and call people, okay? It, correct. It works. All right. So I asked you to first do the podcast, and the first thing you asked me was, what are we going to talk about? Mm -hmm. And I said to you, look, mid midlife male shit, if you will. Let's talk about work. Let's talk about life. Let's talk about balance, fitness, making it all work, if that's even possible, or at least look like it's working. And your response was, I'm 62 years old. That's not midlife in there. And that's exactly why I wanted you here. Uh, so I could learn from you a little bit in there. So what was your journey like to get here? Okay, first, let me preface <laughs> this with, I'm not 62. I'm actually 61. But okay, I, but my that's bad, fine. My bad. That's fine. I'll that's take semantic. 62. You want to give me 62? Okay. That's fine. You're, right. looking, <laughs> you're, you're crushing it for whatever the number is. Okay. Um, all right. So what was your question again? You threw me off completely. Okay. What was your journey like to, to get here? 
It was very circuitous. Um, it's hard to get any place in life because you, there are so many obstacles, and you try different things, and sometimes, you know, you may do pretty well in one particular field of endeavor, but you don't like it. So you're not passionate enough to push through to get to the top of it. So then you change course and you do something else. And so it's a series of just kind of like tries, trials and errors. You know, you, you don't always know where you're going. Some people are blessed enough to know. I mean, one of my neighbors, Harry Connick Jr., kind of knew. You know, he was an, a child prodigy, a great keyboard player. And at 10 years old, he was performing with the New Orleans Symphony. So... In a case like his, you know, he's blessed with that ability to figure it out when you're young. But most people kind of fumble around. It's, mm -hmm. it's very, very difficult to find your stride when you're young. And it's, there's no shame in saying, look, I'm 26, 27 years old, and I still don't have this thing completely nailed down. Nothing wrong with that at all. Just I always tell kids, just do something, and you'll find out what you don't like. What were some of the things you did that you didn't like? Well, I started out as a, as a copywriter for an advertising agency right out of college. This was before I left New Orleans and right after I graduated from Tulane down there. I lasted about, I don't know, three months maybe. I mean, me, a copywriter, why would I do something <laughs> like that? But it was a job, you know, and I got mm -hmm. a paycheck, and I, that was pretty novel in those days. Anyway, um, I, I just didn't like it, and uh, so I went to New York, and I became an actor, and... Um, you know, I, I couldn't put up with the – it was too dicey for me. I didn't know where I was going with that. There was no climb to the top. Uh, you, you had to find a way to get around a lot of the politics, and it was very difficult for me to, to deal with that because I thought I was a good actor, but it was all about who you knew, who you slept with, who you refused to sleep with, and why, and all that other stuff. So I started taking photographs of my thespian colleagues – doing headshots for them, and that's basically how I got into photography. Wow. So back backing up a little bit, you mentioned New Orleans already a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Is that where you were you're born, raised? Born and raised in New Orleans. Actually, I went to high school in Connecticut, but, yeah, I, I came back to New Orleans and uh, graduated from Tulane. So you get into photography. You start taking these, these headshots. How does that evolve from kind of hobby into... I can monetize this career and, and, and take me a little bit into the evolution of going from a, a headshot, if you will, mm -hmm. into, you know, how you have kind of gotten into certainly provocative, creative, artistic imagery. It took an, a very, very, very long time to get to where I am. Um, it, it started with photography, um, doing the headshots, but it evolved into doing corporate work um, that was a lot more expansive. There was a lot of travel involved. I did a lot of annual reports at the beginning. And then I moved more into entertainment, shooting for people like Sony Pictures and HarperCollins and different people like that, quite, a, quite an array of people and institutions. And then I, uh, then I got into fitness. Uh, and fitness was really um, a great field for me. Uh, because I got to, you know, I've always been in fitness my entire life. And I just felt very comfortable in that niche. I felt very comfortable around the athletes. We spoke the same language and stuff like that. And the owners of the big companies that I was shooting for, which is basically everybody who was publishing anything back in the day, um, we all spoke the same language. And so when I mentioned to you earlier about how people start out in life and they fumble around and that kind of thing, you have to really look at 
who you are as a person to decide where you go in life. For me, it started with fitness, and I love the arts. So I always did fitness. I, I loved photography. Um, I was a very good photographer, uh, and I knew I was right from the beginning because people were paying me. So it was something that you know, um, I could keep doing that. It was very, it was a very artistic thing for me because no one really told me how to shoot. I was allowed to just go out and shoot whatever I wanted. At the same time, I was into working out. So I had to figure out how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And eventually I, I landed in uh, publishing. So I started photographing all the fitness magazines, which was perfect for me because I got to photograph, I got to write a lot of the articles and I got to shoot them. So it all kind of came together like that. Now, while all this was going on though, I, in the back of my mind, and I, I, my father was really largely responsible for this one, um, he always said to me, you know, at, at the end of the day, though, Jay, you have to have something to sell because you've got to have a nest egg of some kind. You've got to figure out how to get that. And most, time, most of the time, you're not going to get that on a salary alone. Most people know that. Um, it doesn't matter what you, unless your salary is into the millions of dollars, um, most people simply don't have the discipline or wherewithal to, to save enough money to create a really nice nest egg so that they can retire well, comfortably, very comfortably. Um, so my brothers and I established a real estate company back in the late 80s. And um, we started buying airport lands, putting buildings on airport lands. And uh, eventually, you know, uh, you know, we had tenants um, and we would build a suit, and we'd have income coming in from that while I was off in the middle of nowhere shooting with a, myself and a video crew. Um, so we had that going, and I was, that was kind of, in my mind at least, the way to build a nest egg was to kind of put you know, the, these pieces on the side while I was doing the stuff that I really loved to do because commercial real estate was never really uh, my primary focus, but it was a great fallback position. Is, is it what it sounds, airport land, like – there's just property. Well, there used to be a lot of land around airports before um, there was a lot of uh, import and export commerce in the air transportation industry. Okay. That was a growing field, particularly with all the globalism. So, um, for example, here in Houston, we owned property on Vickery Drive near Intercontinental Airport, and we put a massive building on that uh, property and had. Uh, a large client tenant, and uh, the, the idea behind that was that you know, with the Iraq War and so on and so forth, um, there was a tremendous amount of, for example, military equipment and hardware and so on coming out of the, uh, you know, being flown to the Middle East, and they were using Intercontinental a lot. So, it was a perfect thing for us because we had a big warehouse. We also had a secure warehouse for military equipment and so on, so we could keep the equipment there and then ship it out and eventually we had a buyer and we sold it so this is, is pretty much though about as opposite and unsexy okay there's nothing as, as sexy everything. about it but but no, life is not really sexy you you know you gotta you always have to watch your back i mean life's a food chain i mean you you get what you can get in terms of the enjoyment factor and the rest of it you know nobody's gonna hand you anything so you have to go out there and fight for it and not all of it's pretty and that's and that's kind of spot on to to where where I, I look a lot and go okay you know obviously work is work you know and that's that's why they call it work it's not always going to be you'd be super fun and everything else but here's a traditional kind of if you will business okay you got to build a nest egg you got to do how do you you know 
how do you balance it? How do you keep your interest and focus and say, okay, of course I'd rather be running across the world, you know, taking amazing photographs, you know, and, and shooting for, for muscle and fitness or whatever. But, you know, I got to do this airport land deal, you know, right now because well, I'm thinking did, it, 10 years ahead or 20 years ahead, right. you know, for myself. It didn't require a lot of time. Um, so it was one of those things, you know, we could invest in it. And if we had someone interested in occupying that space, um, we could build to suit, and the metal buildings weren't very complex. So, you know, the the architect went in there, the building was built, we financed the, the construction of the building, the client went in, and we got an X, X number of dollars per month, each of us, for the rent. And I didn't really have to keep up with it. I mean, there wasn't much to do. We had a manager on site, and... I could keep doing the things that I was doing while the buildings and real estate were being managed by someone else. I mean, I, I'm, I have no interest in sitting around fooling with real estate. I mean, <laughs> right. the last thing I want to do is talk about a building on a, you know, at LAX. I really don't want to talk about it. I'd rather talk about what's going on in town at the, at the movie studios. Mm -hmm. So being that way, you, you strike me obviously as a really inquisitive and observational you know, guy. How do you learn, you know, and like what, what do you gravitate towards and what do you want to learn about and, and yeah, kind of keep your mind, mind moving? Hmm? I have always been fascinated by human psychology. So when I have a conversation with someone like you, um, I want to have a meaningful conversation or I don't want to have a conversation at all. The only time I just sort of blow off steam is when I go to the gym and we just talk shit, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's good for me psychologically because I can kind of like it, it's like putting sandpaper on old wood. It gets rid of all the stuff. And then I can go back to being myself again, you know. So what's what's meaningful, you know, like in to you? Because you ask a lot of questions. Like what do you what, what do you th want th that know? question right there alone mm -hmm. is 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 an important question. What is meaningful? It's it's one of those existential questions that a lot of people are interested in. Mm -hmm. They don't, some people don't even realize they're interested in it until they're asked the question. Then all of a sudden, oh my God, what does that really mean? Let me think about this for a minute. Wow. And oh, there are a lot of people who are really embarrassed to answer a lot of these things because they never talk about it because they're not self-actualized. They don't spend a lot of time thinking about these things. I've always been like this. I have no idea why. Can you talk again? But can you talk to anyone, you know? or Everyone. I talk to crane operators, truck drivers, people who work in stop and goes. It doesn't matter to me who I talk to. It really, I mean, I could not care less. I'm not snobbish in any way. I love doing, I love talking to everybody. There was a guy yesterday I had a great conversation with. He's a, an Indian guy who runs a stop and go around the corner from my house. And he and I talk about, I don't know, the most bizarre tangential kind of stuff. And, uh, and then I just sort of leave feeling like, you know, I had a decent conversation with somebody. It wasn't just like, give me a pack of cigarettes, you know, or give me a Coca-Cola or, you know, something like that. I actually had, I, you know, I engaged him. And, and then now I've gotten to know the guy pretty well. So we have these cool little conversations about different things. Sometimes it's Buddhism. You know, it, it can be uh, a lot of times he talks about his childhood and stuff like that growing up in India. <laughs> what does it do for I mean, it seems like it, it kind of fuels you, you know, it does. In, in, in a way. Yeah, because what's the point of living if there isn't anything interesting to talk about? I mean, I'm just not, I'm not going to just walk a beach and die. It's just not who I am. <laughs> I'll end up talking to the birds or the fish. I mean, you know, I have to connect with people or I, I just feel like I'm dying. Are you close with your family? I mean, uh, my father and I had a rather tenuous relationship, to be perfectly frank with you. Um, it was good when we were a little kid. And then as, it, as, as I got older, it, it, it became more tenuous.
And you mentioned working with your brothers also. My brothers and I get along really well, mm -hmm. yeah. And we've been working together forever. So, I mean, I've never had a problem with them at all. And are they here too? In no. Um, one of my brothers, well, they both have property in New Orleans. One of them lives also in Florida. And I don't know if I asked this, but how did you get here? So, you knew you, so New Orleans to New York, you all? In Los Angeles. Well, my father was uh, undergoing cancer treatment at uh, MD Anderson. So I kept coming back here, coming back, coming back, coming back. And eventually I moved here. I really liked the city. I thought it was interesting. Back in those days, it didn't look anything like it looks today. It was weird. It was a different, different city entirely. Um, but uh, there was something about the, the vibe here. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it, it was a big city, but it felt kind of homey. And the people were really nice, which was really shocking coming from Los Angeles. I mean, I, I wasn't used to people interacting with other people that way. I mean, it, it, it wasn't as narcissistic, self-absorbed uh, as Los Angeles. Do you think that created a lot of opportunity for you? Because well, you're, I, you're a bit I, of a, I thought a that yeah, it did because I was a, guy. I, I knew I knew that I could do well here because I could communicate with people. I liked to communicate with people, and people liked to talk to people here in Houston. I mean, I don't know. It's a friendly city. Uh, yep. For the most part, certainly was when I got here, and so being the kind of person that I that I am, uh, it, it worked out really well for me. Everybody was friendly, and I knew that if I talked a good game and I could show them a few good things, uh, you know, they'd be willing to hire me. What do you spend your days doing now? I mean, you seem like a pretty structured, you know, no. I am, and no I think routine is a big deal. It's important. I wake up in the morning at some point, usually about nine o'clock, sometimes one o'clock in the afternoon, but normally around nine. Um, and I write for about three hours. Um, I'll usually work on my blog or my new book, um, which we could talk about if you'd like at some point. Um, but, uh, and then I go to the gym. I'm in the gym with a trainer at one o'clock. After that, I usually go home, go into my photo studio, um, and I'll, uh, either work on backdrops. I love to paint my own canvas backdrops. Um, it's just something that's just kind of cool and it, it makes my work look more unique and so on. But I just, I'll sit down on the floor there and roll them and, you know, take a sponge to them or sandpaper or whatever, fool with that. Um, and then uh, go upstairs after I'm finished with all that and uh, start making dinner and then hang out with my dogs and stuff. And Chelsea's usually getting home about that time. And so we have dinner together, and then uh, we'll usually jump in the hot tub after that. And then from the hot tub, we'll go directly to the bed where we have our MacBooks. We throw our headphones on, throw the dogs in the bed next to us, and disappear for about three hours. And this, and this is life. This, this is, is life. life. This and is then, And then, I, then maybe at about <laughs> 11 o'clock at night, we'll go jump in the pool outside. And then we'll go shower off the chlorine. And then we'll go upstairs and make some frozen fruit, squeeze some orange juice on top of it, something like that. I love frozen fruit. And um, then the dogs will jump in the bed, we'll watch some more TV, and we're gone. And we wake up the next day and it starts all over again. So certainly not an early riser, you know? No, a, little I, more, a little more, you know, while you're at home, you know, a little more creature of the night. You yeah, know? <laughs> well, we, we don't really go to bed until about 1, 12.30 maybe. Because mm -hmm. um, we do like to have a glass of wine late at night. So we'll sit on the porch and uh, we'll s kick back and talk about things. I don't know, whatever, stupid shit. 
and have a glass of wine. Chelsea will usually talk about uh, her training. I'll talk about my workouts. We, it always gets back to that at some point, you know, injuries or anything. <laughs> uh, but we try to keep everything pretty uh, down to earth and uncomplicated before bed. It's a process going to bed. You have to make sure that you're not, there isn't any conflict before you do that. But yeah, I mean, look, I dated you at the beginning. I, I added a year. Sorry about that. But but where does this kind of relentless energy, you know? It's all about lifestyle. You have to eat right. You have to work out. You have to keep a positive attitude. You have to make sure that every day of your life you're challenged. So you have to find something challenging to do every day. I cannot stand to just sit idly by and watch time pass. Um, To be honest with you, it's depressing to me to sit back and just watch a day go by without without accomplishing anything meaningful. Now, there are days when I just feel like crap. Usually it's because I've overtrained. And I'll just have to sit in bed for a day. I don't like it, but I do it. And uh, then, you know, wait for the next day Um, because I've got to – my body will – one way or another, it's got to have the rest and recovery. So at my age, you have got to think in terms of uh, how you're going to recover from the workout you just did. What are you seeing, uh, again, looking around and saying, okay, these guys have got it wrong. You know, like these guys are not, what, what are you observing? What are you seeing in people that say, okay, they're, they're not living in the manner, you know, in the manner in which you described, you know, where they're not taking it. What, what are you seeing in people that you can say now at, at even 61 that, hey, you know, these guys are, you know, in their 30s or their 40s, they're just missing it, you know, somewhere. I feel like, I feel like there's a, there's a large percentage of the population, if you will, that's kind of in this area, you know, and I'm almost 45 right now. You know, they're married, and maybe they're not in the best shape, and maybe they're not. You know, they're all questioning a lot of things, whether it's career, whether it's family, whether it's marriage, whether it's money. They just don't seem to be fulfilled, you know, in there. I th- um, my sights have always been set really, really high. So um, a lot of people are just, you know, they're content with less. I never have been. Some people are happy growing up in some suburban enclave, working for a big company, um, looking in very actuarial way at their lives at, say, 35 and looking ahead and saying 45, 55, 65. So in 30 years, I'm going to retire with this amount of money in my bank account, and I'm going to be getting my Social Security check, and I'm going to have uh, three children, and they're going to be. We're, my wife and I will have an empty nest, and we will then move to Florida. There are a lot of people who live their lives like that in a very linear way. I've not been one of those. I'm not around people like that. I don't know anybody really like that. Um, I've heard that they exist, and I'm actually only speaking to you from a completely hypothetical point of view because I don't know any of the people who do things like this. I can't imagine getting up every day and going to the same like little cubicle space, having to wear a certain thing and and act a certain way and do certain things uh, under the dictate of some, you know, czar in a big office in the corner somewhere. I just can't fathom that. Did you ever wrestle with that though? Did I mean, did you ever? No, I never wrestled with it. I just didn't want to, I didn't never wanted to do it and I didn't do it. (laughs) And so the thing is, in life, if you feel passionately enough about something, you know, through sheer force of will, if you're talented enough, you just make it happen. I mean, that's all there is to it, and that's the key to life. I mean, you have to find something that you are really passionate about, 
and ha- and believe in yourself. You, I mean, now the thing about about success though is that you have to. There has to be a kind of spark somewhere along your path that jettisons you into the stratosphere. In other words, let's say as a photographer, you have to know that you're good and really good. But how do you know that? Well, you can't learn it by just having a few small companies hire you to shoot a couple little brochures. It has to come in the form of something big, like a big-time spark. Some big-time company has to come to you and say, hey, will you photograph, I don't know, I'm going to throw this out, uh, Muhammad Ali. You know, will you do this or will you do that? There has to be something, a spark in everyone's life. And in fact, everyone I know who's super successful has had one of these moments. And there are these aha moments when you realize, oh my God, I really am as good as I think I am. And, you know, I've had quite a few friends who are super successful. Some are celebrities now. And it was those moments that enable them to get there. You don't just kind of like, it's not just one little tiny step necessarily after the next. It's usually a bunch of tiny steps and then one really big step. And that big step is that spark, that fuel that gets you out of the Earth's atmosphere and into space. What was that moment for you? Uh, I would say for me, it was being hired by a couple of very large companies um, during the course, early on in my career, who believed enough in me to fly me around the world to shoot um, all of their facilities, their people, bring a film crew with me to set up the whole thing, and flew me private. And this happened to be a very public company. I don't really want to get into the mm-hmm. specifics of who, of who yeah, the company was. But at any rate, everyone knows the name of the company. And it, I mean, my reputation went through the roof because, you know, simply by virtue of the fact these people were willing to hire me and were willing to spend all of this money on me. Well, that's it. I had a friend growing up, Ellen DeGeneres, for example. She couldn't keep a job to save her life. But then she goes down one day to Clyde's Comedy Corner in the French Quarter in New Orleans when we were kids. She was dating my brother at the time, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, um, she goes down there, and HBO was doing this little you know, contest. Uh, funniest person in America. I can't remember the name of the, okay. the actual thing. But Ellen won it. She came home, and she said, I won this thing downtown. It's like, right? <laughs> okay, what, what are you talking about, Ellen? You just got fired from J.C. Penney. I mean, <laughs> she said, no, I'm serious, man. I won this thing. And, and like, they're going to send me to St. Louis or somewhere. I can't remember where she said she was going for the next one. And then she won the next one. And then she went to New York and ended up on Johnny Carson. <laughs> you know, and he was somebody, you know, least likely to succeed. But the, the point being that there is always, there is a moment in a, in a person's life where you suddenly realize, my God, this is my opportunity. It's like heaven opens the doors for just a minute, and you can look inside, and you actually see the pearly gates wide open, and you know you have access to something that you you might not otherwise ever have access to, but suddenly there it is. And it's like, I guess, if you're a rapper, for example, and you happen to meet Dr. Dre, you were talking about mm-hmm. this earlier, and he happens to think you're really good, and the next thing you know, he's producing your first album. Well, where did that come from? Well, so suddenly you're a player. You went from being a guy on the street that just rapped for, you know, for a dollar to a guy that's working for a superstar. Yeah, go watch the Defiant ones as we were talking about earlier, and you'll see, you know, that's the Eminem story right there. That's the Dre Eminem piece piece of the equation, you know, right there. It's who you meet, how you meet them. I mean, you have to be set up for it, though. You know, you have to position yourself so that you – 
so that when this opportunity does arise, you can make the most of it. Where do you get the inspiration for some of the shots you, you take? I mean, I check out your Instagram and obviously your book and your, and your and and you take some some pretty pretty great pretty great shots. I mean, and and some of them are are pretty out pretty out there. You know, where does it come from? And do you when do you stop in the middle of the night and like write down an idea for it, or do you get? I mean, how do you keep track of you know what you wanna what you wanna shoot? Well, my first book was. Uh, titled Inside Out, and it was a coffee table book basically about a relationship that I had back in, that ended in 2000 and it ended, okay, it ended two, now I'm just, this is coming back to me, it ended two weeks after 9-11, and uh, it affected me so profoundly that I started shooting an entire series about my relationship, and it was all done through um, metaphor. Uh, so uh, I, I felt that at the time, the person that I was with was a certain type of person. So the photographs all reflected that relationship. I had to work through this. It was a difficult, way, uh, difficult process, but photography enabled me to do that um, without literally going over and beating her over the head with a club. And I think it's, it's you know, again, it takes a certain kind of person. Like, I know I couldn't, pot, you know, stand there with the camera and be like, you know, create a shot, or put your hand there, or make this move, or take this pose. I mean, it, I just don't have that kind of thing in me. That's, I mean, well, first of all, I don't do that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't tell anybody what to do. I mean, we talk about the concepts behind what I'm trying to accomplish. Okay, see, so I couldn't direct either. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, but I have to get these people to do it, or it's just going to sit inside of me. Each one of these things are almost like a, well, certainly with that book, they're like a, an exorcism, each one of them, and they better damn well be successful or the demon's still inside. I have to get that out of me. I process through my photography and my writing. That's how I, um, that's how I get through my days, is writing. Writing out all the stuff that's inside of me. I don't know where it all comes from. Maybe I didn't get enough validation as a child. I have no idea. And then where does it, where does it go? I mean, with It the... either goes, it, it's siphoned uh, through different things. Um, I may write uh, a blog about something that, uh, doesn't appear to have anything whatsoever to do with the stuff that's bothering me, but it it's my way of getting to it. Okay, so let's let's touch on that. That'll that'll bring me over to to urban dystrophy. Yeah. Okay. Urban dystrophy. And we got the, the testimonials of a, of a reluctant middle aged outlier. I guess is is what I pulled from your site also in there. Um, and this you know, to me is kind of what I'm I'm fascinated and a bit you know obsessed with it at this point. Um, you know the, and I go back to the, again the mid the midwife male. You know my my contemporaries, if you will, and and even myself, juggling and managing you know, work and family and fitness and, and finance. And you're saying, okay, was today a good? You know the roller coaster. Today a good? You know today a good day. Tomorrow, you know, today not such a good day. You know, am I? Do I care what other people think? You know, am I chasing the wrong kinds of deals? You know, are we, as you said, being. Uh, or, or conforming to it, you know? Do I have to dress like this? Or can I go to the gym at that time? You know, again, all those, all the bullshit that swirls around, you know, in, at least in my loop, loopy kind of head. Um, and 
and I want to talk to you about this urban dystrophy blog and, and book of, of what this means, a, a middle-aged outlier. Huh? The book came from another failed relationship. I've had quite a few failed relationships, actually. What did I say? You, you learn more from failure. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I, I've learned quite a bit from failure, particularly so, about, about attorneys. So but I, I don't have to get into all that. But anyway, um, yes, um, urban dystrophy was... Um, it, it was about being at a certain place in time, a single man out of a relationship, looking for love, essentially in all the wrong places, to use the cliche. Um, I um, I saw other guys like me sort of struggling with the same things. Um, we were successful financially, most of us, um, but sort of lost. You know, I think... Um, after a certain point in life, it's really important to find uh, someone you can share your life with. You know, I spent so many years just sort of running around and acting like a complete friggin' maniac and feeling very emptied out all the time, never, ever fulfilled, um, traveling all the time, and just kind of wasted. And um, when I wrote uh, Urban Dystrophy, uh, I was kind of in that state of mind, like, where is all this going? I was in an existential nightmare I could not get out of. I was really, really pissed off because I couldn't find the woman of my dreams. Um, I couldn't find a stable life. I had a financial stability, but I had nothing else, and it felt really empty. And I became really, really depressed. And um, is this it? was sort of... My mantra, every day I'd wake up and go, what the hell am I even getting up for, you know? I've done all the stuff that I was supposed to do. It's been done. Now what? So I go out with a bunch of friends, and I'd go out to Los Angeles and sit at the bar at the Beverly Wilshire and pick up a Ukrainian hooker or some crap like that. Of course, I didn't know she was a hooker. To me, it was a girl who was actually interested in me, you know? <laughs> and, or I'd go down to some other restaurant bar someplace with a bunch of people, and it was just really, I mean, after a while, it just got kind of um, demoralizing. So I started writing this book about the kinds of people that I was running into all the time, and most of the women I was running into were gold diggers. Um, most people were just, you know, I started seeing life as a, as a food chain rather than, you know, a human society of people who actually have hearts and minds and things that they want to share with one another. Did the writing work out some of the cynicism? You oh, know? Um, yeah, I think it did. And, it, and every time you do a book like that, it's kind of like giving birth, you know. And again, it goes back to the other thing about whenever I take a, do a, a photo series or something like that, it's a kind of exorcism. It's a cleansing. I get it out, and then I start all over again. And the stuff, the crud accumulates, and then you've got to figure out a way to get rid of all that. Some people can do it by just going to the gym. I need other ways to do it. But this also comes, I think, you know, from observation. Again, you're looking at well, you're born meeting, with right, who you're running into, right. you know, and, and, and maybe it's completely empty and unfulfilling for you. Um, but, yeah, I look at sometimes I go, wow, I can't. Is this fulfilling for, for anybody else? You know, like, how can they do this? We talked about it earlier. How can you get up, put on the same clothes every day, go to the same exact place, sit down in the same chair, and do that over and over again? Is that the way it's supposed to be done, you know? Does every kid have to, you know, go to the same kind of school and then do the same thing in the side? The, the keeping up with the Joneses or the, or the community stuff. And I, I look around, you know, I think, well, like, like you and I, and I go, 
this it? This the way it's supposed to be done? Or do we have to do it this way because everybody else, you know, is doing it? And then I get these these guys that even come to me, look at me and go, well, how do you sell insurance and have a gym and play in a band, you know, and find time to work out and coach your kid? And it's almost like with a, with like a resentment or like you should feel badly for doing, you know, all, all of these, all of these things or you should have to judge, justify it. And then I turn around and I used to answer it. Now I just really don't even answer a lot of it because I don't know the answer either. But I mean, in my head, I just go, well, why not? Like more like, why, why don't you like, is this it every day for you? Not everybody's <laughs> wired like we are, Greg. I mean, we're very similar in a lot of respects, you know. Um, a lot of people just don't have the energy. Um, they don't have the will. They don't have the determination. But more than anything else, they don't have anything in life that really moves them. Um, so, I mean, you and I have all these divergent interests, and it keeps us motivated. I mean, I can go home and just sit there and play a guitar and feel great for the, for an hour or so and then go from that to writing something on a computer going into the studio going to the gym i mean i have so many interests and i really enjoy all of those interests and a lot of people don't have a lot of interests yeah, and i think it's like finding those people like it's really it's hard to find those similar people you know i sit here and, go, and, and i'm like wow okay like yeah, I'm going to go home probably from here and I've got four guitars in four different rooms, you know, in my house and I'll probably grab one. But the thought of just sitting still. You I know, can't or, do it. I've never doing, been able to do that. Or doing nothing, you know, if you will, or even doing the same thing, if you will, over and over again. And even even my my client base, fortunately, is wonderfully diverse because of the way that I want it in, the, in that regard because there's an ability to live vicariously through some of these other great creative entrepreneurs in areas that I'm passionate about because, look, I can't do it all. You know, no, none, of us, none of us can. No, and that's but something I've had to come to terms with at 61. I, you know, you can be a jack of a lot of trades, um, but at the end of the day, you, you really have to focus on one or maybe two things mm -hmm. to be, you know, you can do a lot of things once you're successful doing one thing. Uh, but if you can't afford it, uh, you really need to stay focused on one thing. Yeah, you end up spreading yourself too right. thin. Right, because then, then, sudden then you suddenly you're, you're really not accomplishing a whole lot. Yeah, um, you're, you're busy, but you're not exactly productive. <laughs> right. I mean, in my case, you know, I can kind of live this life because I can afford to live this life. But I had to get to this point first. Um, make no mistake about it. Back in the early days when I was younger than you, um, and I, I had to travel constantly. I couldn't stay in the kind of shape that I wanted to stay in because I was on a plane, right? and I was changing time zones every five minutes. And I went from, you know, eating clean, organic stuff here to eating somebody's goat in the Middle East, you know. And so it's, it, you don't know where you're going to be. I mean, I would go to, to England, for example, and shoot somebody for two and a half hours and get back on a plane and fly back to the United States. I mean, it was crazy. Um, so, you, you know, you have to pay your dues. You do the best you can to find what you love to do most. You do it. You make the most of it. And then you hope that one day you can afford to do more of what you really, you know, more of what you want to do uh, in life that gives you more time to manage your own hours. I mean, I didn't manage my own hours in those days. 
you know, I needed the money. I had to pay for real estate. I had to pay for all kinds of stuff. So if the job came in and the money was right, I took it. I didn't mm-hmm. care where. I was in Turkmenistan one time. I think I want to be spending my time in Turkmenistan, just north of Tehran, <laughs> in the Ural Mountains. Thank you for saying that because I had no idea where. where no, but most people don't was. even know where these places are that I had to shoot. I mean, you know, Eritrea, and I mean, I don't know, hanging out with the Peruvian military over rainforests and and with people with you know coke farmers. I, I don't know. It was crazy. I mean, the stuff that I did was totally crazy. That's why fitness was really a great salvation for me because I didn't have to travel as much. Well, from the outside looking in, it probably looked pretty glamorous, but to you, to you're most going, people, you're going, hey, I want to be on this plane. Right. You know? I mean, yeah, okay, well, you can go to some weird country and have somebody put an AK-47 to your head if you like. That's fine. <laughs> if you consider that glamorous, go for it. I mean, life is, you know, you, you never judge a person uh, from the outside. You have to live in their shoes. And, and since you can't do that, you really can't judge anybody at all because you don't know. I mean, doing the things that I did, doing the things that I had to do, um, were not all fun. I mean, to people on the outside who sit in an office in a cubicle, maybe it's exciting. Um, and some of it was. I, I mean, I'm the first to admit, it's it's nice to fly in a private jet. Believe me, it's, it's the way to go. So... Um, I love private jets. I'm the first to tell you there's, there's, there's nothing better on earth than a private jet. But, you know, um, there are also the downsides. There's a lot of drudgery in everything. It's not, I mean, some people would say, well, you know, I don't know, Howard Stern has it made because he makes uh, whatever he makes a year. Yeah, but I listen um, to him every morning and the guy, again, has been waking up at 4 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning every single day, clearly, okay, to, to, because he's passionate about putting out four, five, six, 24 hours a day. Now, content. I mean, and the guy it, never the guy stops would be working. doing it for free. But it's, it, the thing about it is it, what people don't understand is how much goes into all this. It, it's, you know, money doesn't just fall off the trees. And when it does, you usually end up in rehab. I mean, most people have to work very hard to make a lot of money. And it's not all glamorous, but you have to love it enough to be willing to sacrifice for it. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Stern, I mean, obviously he loves what he does. And, you know, it doesn't bother him. It's not work to do. Well, and I'm not saying he doesn't, his personal life doesn't suffer and hasn't suffered. I mean, we're all human. We all go through these different problems uh, sure. from time to time. Mm-hmm. It's not, none of us are immune to these things, you know. Uh, but if there's something that means enough to you to, to really bust your ass and achieve uh, day in and day out, no matter how much time it takes, then, you know, God bless you, because it's it's very very difficult to find that in life. If you have it, good for you. If you don't, I'm sorry. Who's the your favorite subject uh, to photograph, or that you have, or that you have photographed? <laughs> I think uh, ooh, that's wow. I don't know. Um, the first person that popped in my head was Evander Holyfield. And I say that because, you know, I remember um, when I was photographing him for the first time, I was, he kind of scared the shit out of me. Did you get him pre-ear or post-ear? Uh, I got him 39 days before the Tyson fight. Okay. So, I mean, and, and prime, get, prime Evander getting ready for Tyson. Right. And Evander was 226. I believe he was 6'2", 220 at the time. And, uh, I mean, a total killing machine. I'd go down to this gym and watch him uh, spar with these different guys that he had down there sparring with him. And 
it was so intense watching this guy fight. I mean, it was really, I mean, I was into sports and I thought of myself as pretty badass. This guy scared the shit out of me. <laughs> you know, he was just this heavyweight world champion boxer. And I mean, the, the punches would shake the windows in the gym. And uh, he came to my studio and he was kind of serious when he first walked in. And uh, my studio assistant was there and uh, lighting guy. Uh, and we looked at him walk in there, and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh man, here we go. This is gonna. I'm gonna have to say all the right things, you know. And I'm not, <laughs> and I don't really have much of a filter, so um, I did the best I could. But I wanted Evander to smile for me. I really, I wanted a genuine smile from him. I wanted to see that side of him. And um, so he, my sister happened to be in the in the next room, and she heard was you know we were trying to get Evander to lighten up a little bit. And she said, I got an idea. So she walks over to Evander, and she pours a bucket of freezing cold water over his head. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, the time stood still. This is it. This is the day I die. So <laughs> anyway, Evander cracks up. He had a great time, and it was an awesome shoot. Um, but, you know, it, <laughs> that was probably the most interesting. It always comes back to me, and I always wondered what would happen if he got really pissed off about it. But it worked out just fine. <laughs> So tell me about the opposite to, to that. Um, I've been, I've been okay, I'll give you a good example. Um, and this was not, this had nothing to do with uh, the subject, but with the people around the subject. I was um, photographing Rodney Dangerfield one time at the Beverly uh, Hilton Hotel in Los Angeles. And uh, he, he was actually great to work with. I was photographing him with uh, the CEO at the time of, what was it? Um, I can't remember the name of the airline. What was the, not uh, Nash, what was the name of the airline that Gordon Bethune was the CEO oh, of? Continental, Continental Airline. Yeah. It was Continental <laughs> yeah. Airline. Okay, I can't, because I shot for all the airlines. I get all these people confused. But anyway, so he flew me and a crew out there to, to photograph Danger, Dangerfield. And we were sitting there on the set photographing him. But there was a guy there, one of these L.A., you know, agent type guys and um we were trying to get out of there because i had another shoot back in houston so we had to get our stuff out once we finished and i had my crew pick the stuff out and move it out well this guy didn't want us to move he wanted me to sit still while he because he didn't want his client you know mr dangerfield there to be disturbed in any way he didn't want any cords moving because it made him look unprofessional i said dude you want to pay me for the time that i'm going to be paid in houston and uh, he was really a jerk about it and, you know, got in my face about it right there. And then he had all these kind of goons sort of surround my crew and stuff like that saying, look, this is the way we do business in L.A. And I said, yeah, well, this is the way we do business in Texas. <laughs> and we picked up our stuff and we left. But it was a, almost a police standoff. I mean, you know, because we were going to get out of there come hella high water and go back and do the other project for our clients. But sometimes it gets tough. I mean, you you know, you're dealing. People think, oh, well, these photographers and videographers, everything's they're all you know. There's a lot of camaraderie and all that stuff. It's a bit, it's a blood sport. Well, people highly are, competitive, of course. I mean, extremely whatever, competitive. Whatever field you're in, I mean, you want to be the best of the best, and it's highly competitive. Highly. I mean, how many people get to shoot Rodney Dangerfield? How many people get to shoot Evander Holyfield? I get, I don't know, but it can't be that many. I mean, if you're thinking about an entire career or body of work, probably not that many, right? Um, I guess not. Yeah. Uh, you know, the way we thought of it, though, was it was just a job. And I appreciated 
photographing these people because I got paid a lot of money to do it, but it didn't ever really matter to me who I was photographing as long as the person I was photographing was an interesting person to talk to and was, you know, pleasant to have on the set and, you know, we could connect and do a good shoot together. They're all collaborative projects, so the more creative the person or the more, uh, I guess, uh, amenable to suggestion the person, the better the shoot. And, you know, sometimes some people are nice to work with and others aren't. And whether it's a celebrity or a CEO or whatever, I mean, they all have huge egos. You have to deal with that. That's a given. I mean, try photographing Tyler Perry. Believe me, that's not easy. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of these people are, are tough. Um, you, you just have to believe in yourself, know that you're going to do a great job no matter what. Um, and you got to stand toe-to-toe with people. You can't let them stand on top of you or overshadow you in any way because it's the same thing with life. If you stand toe-to-toe with a CEO, hold your ground, be who you are, they will respect you. That's how they got there. So my next question actually was, would you rather be respected or feared? Kind of led right there. You go right from the, from the, the goon story in L.A. of them surrounding you to going toe-to-toe to be respected. Okay? Well, I don't know where, what where fear you... means. I, I think that people fear people who are respected in a lot of ways because they know they have something that they perhaps don't have. You know, I have the respect of my peers, which is a big deal to me. And I know people say, well, you know, th- th- there's this whole thing about, well, you know, you don't need external affirmation to feel good about yourself. That's total bullshit. And any therapist worth their salt will tell you that everybody that, for example, if, if you happen to be an actor, there is, there is no rainbow at the end of the bridge over there if there's no applause. Believe me, you need the crowds. If you're a musician, you need to be able to sell out concert halls. You need to be able to sell records. You have to have the affirmation. That's affirmation. I don't care how you want to couch it. That's essentially affirmation. So with photography, if I don't have people that like my work or if I don't get response from people on something, then, you know, it's, what's the, why am I doing it? Because, I, frankly, I don't think I'd do anything if it weren't for the response I get to things. What's the point? Well, that's, again, I guess people differ, you know, in terms of whatever their personal – internal security is, you know, in terms of how much affirmation they may need. Well, I'm an artist, though. That's the difference. Because now in real estate or anything, I don't care. I mean, it's to me, it's just the money, and I get the money, and I get to do what I want to do, the kind of thing. But look, I I mean, again, I'm in two very distinct businesses, okay? So you look at insurance, and you look at risk math, okay? You're out there, of course. Nobody is sitting around waiting, you know, waiting for my call, you know, saying, I thank goodness you called me today. I couldn't wait to move my insurance, you know, if you will. It's a very no, 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 you know, long sales cycle, very tough to transcend being, let's say, a salesperson, if you will, you know, into a professional. And how do you elevate yourself to that other person's level or get them to see you on the same level so you're adding value or bringing something to it. And when you get that affirmation, when they bring you in, you know, or you actually feel like you've kind of busted through a little bit and now we have a, a relationship, if you will. We've transcended. Now it's not a commodity-based relationship anymore. There's something there. You're in the, the, the circle of, of trust, if you will. That's a great, great feeling, of course. You know, and that's what you want from, from any client-type relationship and to get to the level I think that's why most guys in a way don't make it because it's constantly transactional in a way they can't wait to get off the phone. Did I make the sale or they won't bring other things to somebody's attention because they're almost afraid of, you know, this could jeopardize this aspect of the relationship or if they don't want to talk about it, then I'm not going to bring it up or talk about it. And they never get there. But, 
you look for the validation and the affirmation. And then my, and then I said, my other business that we've talked about, like with Row, with with a gym, we've tried to create a concept from from scratch to try to bring indoor rowing, if you will, to the forefront of of fitness. And what do we look for every day? I mean, affirmation. How many people walk through the door, take the classes, enjoy it, and come back again? And if they don't, to what degree do you feel like a failure? You know. Well, I, I think that's a that's a very good point. And I mean, I. Personally, I, you know, I'm the first to admit that I like the applause. You know, I like to connect, and once I connect and I something goes well with the relationship, I feel great about it. Oh, I do, listen, I do too. I can't stand. Look, I, I still can't stand it. You know, being not getting a call returned or, or getting told no or or trying to get your point across, and at the, and the end of the day, it's never going to click. You know, with, with this person. Or I wake up every morning and I look at our app and say, how many people are signed up for classes today? And if it's over 100, I'm in a great fucking mood, okay? And if it's less than that, you know, my day starts off like, what, what's wrong? What's going on? You know? I, I'm the same way you are. I mean, I, I you know, uh, I'm exactly the same way, and I've always been like that. I want to know that what I have done, you know, I'm always re, reaffirming myself that way. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, whatever I happen to have been doing in my life, as long as, you know, all of these efforts that I've put forth begin to sort of trickle in and, and you know, provide dividends, then I'm good. If I were to start, if I were to have done real estate, for example, and not gotten anywhere with it, uh, it would have depressed me to a point where I just, I would have left. And the same thing with, you know, with acting, it happened. I wasn't getting anywhere fast and I wasn't willing to sleep with people to get to the top. I just wasn't willing to do that. I mean, blame my childhood. I don't know. I just wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't take rolls of $100 bills from older men who wanted to sleep with me. And that's the, the dirty <laughs> little secret about the acting business. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not some beautiful woman who walks up to you and says, oh, my God, you're this gorgeous young man. Can I, would you please come home and ravish me? No, it doesn't really work like that. So unless you have connections in the industry, it's generally you're not going to get in. So I wasn't willing to put up with that kind of bullshit. And so that's I had to take matters into my own hands. I went into photography and nobody could tell me what to do. But I got affirmation again because people started coming to me for headshots. Right. <laughs> so again, you know, no matter what you do, you, you first of all, you have to be able to live with what you do. You have to live with your decisions. You have to think about every, you know, you have, do you have a moral compass? I do. A lot of people don't. Some people are just sort of amoral, almost sociopathic. I'm not that way. Yeah, there's, there's unfortunately far, far too many of them. You know, I, I also feel like, wow, there's, there's an astounding number of people who seem to blissfully go through life just fucking people over. There are a lot of We're not caring, well, it, you know, about, it, it's and sleeping very it, well. 3% <laughs> of our population are clinical psychopaths. That's a lot of people. <laughs> So that's a lot of people. I'm not saying they're all homicidal, but what I am saying is that if you're a psychopath and you have no capacity for empathy or remorse, you're going to kick shit down well, yeah, and I not really to, think much about it. I used to get much more bent out of shape over over uh, what people said or what people did, if you will, or particularly in terms of say one thing and do another. You know, and just how how do you do that over and over again? And I kind of come to realize there's a lot of people I just think don't like confrontation. They have a very hard time being direct. You know, they have a very hard time you know, saying exactly what's on their mind or they don't mean to disappoint you, but they disappoint you because they're, they're trying to please you. And by essence of trying to please you and then not delivering, they ultimately end up disappointing you. 
Um, I ran into a lot of people like that when I was uh, when I was younger. I don't know a lot of people like that anymore because I pick and choose my relationships very very carefully. The people I'm around are not like that. They don't pull punches. They're not people pleasers. They're not people. They don't try to please me. I mean, we have real conversations. If they have issues with me or they have something they want to talk about, we talk about it. Um, but I, 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 um, I have run into a lot of people like that in my life, and it's very, uh, it's unfortunate. I've just never been like that myself. Do you have a lot of friends? I do. Yeah. I do. I guess because you, you, you want that and all, but. Are you like, do you spend time? Are you alone a lot too? Like, do you want that, or you know? I mean, I, I think I come across or a lot of people even think that that I'm quite extroverted, if you will. But I'm I'm far more introverted than I think most people actually think. That by the time I'm done, you know, being out there, I do just want to come home, you know, and and, well, and yeah. hang with with. But we're, we're and you and I are busy. And I, uh, mm-hmm. We we spend a lot of our time working, doing things that we love to do. Uh, we're we're. I mean, speaking for myself, I'm. Very rarely bored. Um, but at night, I am kind of a homebody. Uh, Chelsea and I have been together for six years, a little over six years. And there's nothing more rewarding uh, or enjoyable for me than to come home and hang out with my family. You know, I just really enjoy it. Um, I don't go out to restaurants a lot anymore the way I used to. I certainly don't go to bars. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like being around drunk people. So, I mean, it's just, what's yeah. the point? I think it's much more fulfilling being home. See, we still do the restaurant thing all the time, but we actually do it more at the grandparent hour, you know, than, yeah. uh, well, than, than ever to go out and, and, try the, <laughs> and try the places we want to try and, and support the friends and the clients. And I love great food and we love great chefs and, and the artistry of that. Um, but I really, I can't deal with the, the, the night like I used to, I'm much more of a day person than, than I am a night person. It used to be much more the other way, especially, you know, the, the crowds. Um, and then, of course, it gets, uh, then you, you have one too many, and then it affects your workout the next yeah, day. Yeah, I know, and you're everything right. Everything kind of gets gets thrown off, and then uh-huh. it seems like, okay, my, my balance is off, you know, from, from, do, from doing that. Um, I can't go to the gym after drinking the night before and do anything but, you know, borderline throw up. There's no way I can feel good about my workout because I don't have it in me. It, yeah. You know, so my life is, in that sense, very regimented. I mean, I eat clean. I don't drink very much. Um, I obviously don't do drugs and all that sort of thing. I, I live a very clean and, in my view anyway, kind of routine life, even though it's different than the kinds of routines people are used to thinking of. Uh, but it, it's pretty regimented. Um, I pretty much know what I'm going to eat each meal. And I know that sounds a little OCD, but that's the way it is. Um, and I know pretty much when I'm going to eat every day because if I don't, my blood sugar crashes. But, you know, I, that fills – that frees up a lot of time in a way. You know what I found with, like, being structured and a little bit more regimented, that it actually frees up a lot of time. You know, and it gets back to that people asking, well, how do you do all this stuff? Or, again, look. This is a better hour, quite frankly. Greg, for me. my okay. father used to spend four hours over dinners 
back in those days. That was the World War II generation. I mean, if you actually write it down and you schedule some stuff, it's amazing how much time you actually find to be available. If you say, okay, <laughs> if I know what I'm going to eat and I know what I'm going to work out and I know what time I have to be home, here's how many blocks I have open, you know, kind of in the middle of the day to focus on stuff. Or I'm going to go talk to Jay from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 5 o'clock, okay? And then I'm probably not going to talk to anybody, you know? For the well, that's rest, actually a really good point because yeah. it takes us about 20 minutes for dinner. And then dinner's over and... You know, the fuel's in the body. I feel good, and I'm ready to move on to something else. So you're right. I mean, it does. It frees up lots of hours that might otherwise be spent hanging out, you know, drinking or, you know, eating out for three hours and all that other stuff. So, we, you know, it's pretty quick. When I don't schedule it, mm -hmm. and it is random, mm -hmm. and then I don't know what it is, it tends to throw everything else off, and then those days seem to become completely discombobulated, and nothing's as good as it was the day before, or the order that should be, when he said, okay, you know, purpose, process, payoff, I know what it is. And, I mean, even we touch, I don't, I don't like to even drink when I'm out anymore because it's less controllable. Like when I'm home, I know exactly what I can pour for myself. Go grab the dog leash, go for a walk, finish it, you know, as so I walk around the block, come back and go, okay, no sacrifice. I got exactly what I wanted. I can control it here, you know, and, and be no, done. I totally understand. Well, it's so bad for me with uh, you talking about drinking. I, I have a glass of wine late. Because if I have one early, I, I can't accomplish anything. So it has to be late. I mean, everything has gotten to a point where it's, it, it is extremely regimented, I guess. You know, I just, my body is very, very sensitive to what I put in it. So at 61, in order to be able to perform in the gym, to do the things that I do, I have to eat right. I have yeah. to sleep a lot. I've got to take great care of myself, and I've got to be passionate about the things that I'm doing in my life. I've got to have a, I have to have a relationship also. Uh, where I can rest my head and heart. Yeah, and people and, ask how people, you know, how, how you do what you do. I mean, and, and again, they're, they're your answers. And some people aren't willing to make those kinds of sacrifices or, or do it that way. And that's, you know, to each, teach his or her own. But, you know, you go look at people that look like they're putting in the work, and, and, and they are. You know, they're not doing some of the other things, you know, that, that uh, other, others, you know, aren't, you know, in, in there. Well, Let me Greg, ask you, you. Yeah, I, I just wanted to make this one point. You know, you have carved out this life for yourself through sheer force of will. Okay, a lot of people, again, I'm going back to what I said earlier, a lot of people don't have that passion. They don't have that confidence to, to go out there and to create something, to create this world that's all theirs. That, yeah, but it's a little, I mean, and I, and I look, and certainly I, I appreciate that, but I, look, I like you know, the affirmation, you know, we can get into my cycle babble BS of, okay, you know, I lost my father when I was young, my brothers had issues, all kinds of things. So I look for mentors. I look for affirmation. You know, I genuinely want, you know, bothers me if I'm not liked, you know, and I like to try. I don't think there's anything unusual about that. I think every human being likes that kind of thing. It's not that you, you crave it, but it's nice to know that, you know, that people care about the things that you do for them or say to them or maybe, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, but it, it's nice to get affirmation. And no, I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody feeling badly if they don't get it. No, and I like to try different different things. You know, I mean, I will... I mean, fortunately, I guess at least I'm not afraid of failure, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, and I do it over and over and over again. And I wrestle with a lot of what you mentioned earlier in the conversation about you know, maybe jack of all trades, master of none. At some point, you got to limit some of these distractions. You, you have gotta, to. You got to yeah. streamline some of these hobbies. And you got to say, okay, you know, what are the things that I'm really focused on? You know, is 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 doing this podcast? You know, is that gonna 
is that going to help and improve my business and my personal brand? And am I going to get the value out of it, you know, personally and professionally as I want? You know, do we stay the course and continue to grow? Row. Do I enjoy running a gym as much as I enjoy working out in one? You know, those are two very different things, you know, mm -hmm. in there too. You know, can I double my book of business and can we grow, you know, Inns Group into the largest agency, you know, in, in Houston, if not the country? You know, like, and where do you, where do you focus? And not just trying to get better at saying no to things also, because you can say yes to a lot of stuff and be, bu yeah, and be busy, you know, all the time. Um, and then look back and go, wow, I did a lot of things, but, you know, where am I, you know, right now? Like in the overall journey that I make. You any can't real, ever, you can't get problems. to the, right. You, you can't get too sidetracked in a lot of things at the same time. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, at least in my career, it was really important to stay super focused until I got to a point where I didn't have to be as focused on one thing. Um, the, the <laughs> it's very important for people to realize that, you know, doesn't matter what you do in life, you better have something that's going to provide security for you when the workforce no longer needs you or wants you. And I think that a lot of people today start out their lives thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm immortal. Everything's going to come to me. Everything will be great. I'll do this. I'll do that without really thinking carefully that they're entering a food chain that is relentless in trying to get, you know, everyone's trying to get to the top. Mm -hmm. they're, and they're willing to do pretty much anything and everything to supplant you. So yeah. you have to think about that as you're going through life. No matter, I mean, you may be passionate about piano playing, for example, but if there's no money in piano playing, you better find something else to do. So while it's important to do something that, you know, it'd be great if your primary passion was something that generated enormous income, that'd be great. But, I mean, if it's not, then you've got to go, you know, second tier, which is fine, too, because you still have a lot of passion maybe about that, you know. Uh, it... it you can't always be everything that you want to be in life, but you, you know, there's always something that you can do that you'll, you'll find rewarding. I mean, but you got to find that and then you got to stick with it. What's the new book about? The new book is about being 60 and beyond. It's this sort of, uh, it's this chapter of my life, what it's like living with a woman half my age who is literally FYI, a millennial. And, uh, I'm a baby boomer, right smack dab in the middle of the baby boom. And uh, what it's like to uh, live this chapter of my life, I've never been here before. I've never been in long-term committed relationship, never lived with a woman before in my life, um, had all these transient, crazy relationships, I guess primarily because I was changing residences, changing you know, cities literally, uh, traveling a lot, um, not not really spending a lot of time focusing on my relationships, really focused more on my, I focused more on my career. Um, never had a desire to have children. Um, why that is, I don't really know, but um, it remains to this day. But, um, so it's about where I am now. And um, it involves a lot uh, of uh, physical stuff, like what it's like going to a gym every day at 61, you know, um, how my body responds to things, what I have to do in order to maintain myself, um, how I maintain relevance in my own mind, both physically and psychologically. It's a big deal. Relevance is a major big deal to guys like me because you always want to feel like you're a part of something, that you, you are not just another cog in the wheel 
but carrying forward everything that I've done in my life, it's really important to feel like you're um, an active participant in life. The worst thing for a man is to feel like he has nothing left to do. Um, where it's, you know, they move to Florida and they walk the beaches and they wait for the damn seagulls to carry him off to sea. I mean, that's, you know, one of the most dreary metaphors in the world to me. Uh, it's horrifying to think that, that people get to that point in life. But uh, so it's about maintaining relevance in the later years of life. Who do you want to read it? Um, I think that uh, all ages will really appreciate the book. Um, because it's, it, I, I do go back to my youth a little bit in the book, talk about what it was like when I was in my late 20s, for example, um, not, not being able to navigate properly. You know, just I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. I fumbled around a lot. I really did. We didn't get into a lot of that stuff, but you know, just touched on it briefly. But it was, a, it was a very circuitous journey for me and a very difficult one because I had to think about my future in terms of how I was going to actually you know, make serious money uh, versus what I really love to do. It was always a battle, you know. Um, so I had to find a way to make photography both successful and uh, but successful enough to carry me through life. So I had to get into other things as well. Most photographers don't make millions and millions of dollars a year. And while I did very well, um, most of that money went into real estate. You know, because I didn't, I just didn't, you know, photography to me always seemed kind of ephemeral. I never really understood why it was so valuable. I was just good at it, and maybe I took it for granted. Um, it, you know, I, 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 just, I was able to continue doing something that I really love to do, but I just couldn't see any, uh, why would someone hire me instead of someone else? I had to figure out how to really nail, you know, get myself burrowed into something economically where people couldn't kick me at, kick me to the side without paying me handsomely for it. So I bought land <laughs> and built buildings, and that's how you do it. I mean, if you want to, you know, I, I know a couple of my contemporaries who still do well in New York as fashion photographers, um, but, you know, they started at 17, didn't go to school. Mm -hmm. They went immediately to Rolling Stone, started shooting celebrities, and that was kind of their real estate. Uh, you know, they had that in their uh, portfolios, and so they were able to use that, parlay that into future work. Um, that wasn't the way I started. Right. And there's always somebody coming right up behind. That's no, right. Of course. So you had to, you, you either got there when you were a kid, made your connections, you know, went to the devil's crossroads and signed that blood pact with that damn demon when you were a kid, or you better find something else that's going to, you know, will always back you when you really need it. You touched on relevance, you know, and, uh, and you touched on, you know, the worst thing for, for a man, if you will, is, you know. The, the last question I had for you, and, and you, you kind of foreshadowed, you seem to get there, which is kind of cool as far as, like, where you start talking. And then I kind of look and go, what did, what did I have planned for maybe we could talk about and see where this goes? Well, when it is all over, if you will, you know, how, how do you want to be remembered? Um... God, you're going to go down this existential road with me? <laughs> I guess I don't really care in the end because I'm not going to be around to think about it. 
you know, as long as I'm doing stuff that I consider meaningful now and people enjoy it, that's great. I don't think about what people are going to think about when I'm dead because I don't have to worry about taxes anymore. I'm not going to be around to really watch you guys do whatever it is that you do or say whatever it is you're going to say. I just try to live each day uh, I, being good to the people around me, um, being as good a person as I can be, sharing as much as I can share. Uh, and then whatever happens when I'm gone, I really don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just hope that I leave the world a little bit better place than, than I found it when I got here. Jay Rusevich, photographer, writer, fitness fanatic, uh, urban dystrophist. Could that be? Yeah, yeah, that, that that's great. Be, yeah, I, be, I like the way you yeah, do that. Be, be a word right there on the Greg Scheinman podcast. If you like the show, enjoy what you've heard, um, subscribe, write a great review. Uh, certainly appreciate it. Jay, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for Come back. Me. Let's do another one. Absolutely. The Greg Scheinman Podcast was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit innsgroup.net.